Matthew 26 from verse 36 to 39. It's on page 832. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I, but your will. Please keep your Bibles open. Um, Let me pray for us as we start. Father God, we do thank you that you are righteous and holy uh, that you are not like us and as we grapple uh, with how you are not like us and how as it challenges us and perhaps um, unsettles us at times we pray that we would uh, be those who would uh, love you and and just see how glorious you are uh, rather than being those who would just Uh, ignore what we hear and go away unchanged Uh, so we do pray for your spirit's work in our hearts as we hear your word today and thank you for this opportunity we have and we pray that you would be with us uh, by your spirit to help us to understand what we hear and change us we pray amen Uh, Well, you'll know that in this uh, mini-series we're doing uh, usually we'd take a book of the Bible, wouldn't we and be walking our way through um, a book of the Bible. So we've been doing Colossians uh, for the for most part of uh, the end of last year and to the start of this year. Um, and we've come to the end of that. Um, but we thought we'd do something slightly different, which is where we take a theme. We don't usually do that as a church, but where we take a theme or a Bible term or a doctrine or a thing we want to understand and where we unpack it a bit. Um, and obviously, uh, the words that we've been looking at are these big words. Uh, because they tend to be, it tends to be the more theological or um, the more kind of academic you get, uh, the, more, the longer the words become, right? So you all know that when you've done your thesis in whatever it is, you know, you can barely fit the word on the page. Uh, whereas these words, thankfully, are a little bit shorter than that. But we're getting a bit longer. We've gone to five syllables now. Propitiation. It's a long one, okay? Five syllables. We're, we're getting there. You know, this is the progress. Um, and these words are actually, they're just words, aren't they? But behind them are the aspects and the ways of understanding what Jesus' death achieved, right? The different angles of it, at it, looking at it. Um, so they will really help us to, to warm our hearts, I hope, um, as we've, you see this cross in, in all its splendour and see what Jesus did afresh. Um, today we're thinking about this one word, propitiation. Thank you for um, being able to pronounce it, George. And uh, for telling us what it means. God's anger turned away. That's what it means. Okay. Um, as we start, 
Uh, this is a, an artist uh, in, in Ukraine, I think, uh, or, yeah, I think it's a Ukrainian artist of um, the streets, the scenes in Ukraine uh, that were left from the Russians, the occupation, right? Um, it's very graphic, uh, very bright, you know, the colours are very vivid, colour of death, <laughs> um, red, isn't it? And, and, and the fact that these are civilians, you know, a person on their bike, someone else, you know, children, uh, just lying there in the street. Um, that's what we've been seeing on the screens, isn't it? And what I want to start off with asking you is, is it right to be angry? Yeah. We don't, you, you don't need me to tell you that, do you? It's right to be angry when we see things like that, when we see injustice, when we see those kind of things. So there's a right response to that, and it is anger. Now, the problem is not that our um, emotions or our response is, is awry or, or wrong. It's a right response, but the, the problem is that our emotions are too weak, far too weak. And, and, and I want to just press into this a little bit because we're going to be thinking a little bit about God's anger, God's wrath. And um, what I mean by saying our response is too weak is that actually our kind of anger is a bit like this, um, so it's justified anger, but it's a bit like this um, fizzy drink, right? Because actually, Hannah, we were in the park just beforehand and you, the bottle got thrown and you know what it's like, isn't it? When they've got a, a sugary drink, you don't have to leave it for a while, but like... If you did open it, what would happen? Well, it would bubble up quickly, and then it would subside quickly. So I, our anger is too weak because it bubbles up quickly. But it goes, it subsides and fades just as quickly. So I'm up in arms one day at what I've seen, and the next day someone has to almost remind me of what I was so upset about. Um, so I just think... When we're looking at God's anger and seeing the way that he responds, we've got to see that, that his response is going to be entirely, or quite, quite a bit different from ours. Because our anger is just, is flighty, isn't it? It, it? it comes up quickly, but it, it drops away quickly. It disappears. The response that we first had is gone with very quickly, and as quickly as it came. And if I'm honest with you, actually, there are many other moments this week where my anger has moved me to a response, but it's not from these kind of things, the injustice of others. The truth is, my anger bubbles up most when it directly affects me. So as I wrote these words, I was talking, I was just at my desk. Um, our son, who's, who's a delight when he's here, isn't he? Um, he was refusing downstairs to stop watching his iPad. And Hannah had told him that he had to turn it off. She had to tell him again and again and again. The thing is, I could hear all this going on from my study, and it didn't really bother me at that moment. Hannah got to the point where she took the iPad off him, and then Eddie started to bawl and wail. And that was the point where I got involved. I got interested in the situation, because his voice was loud enough to get to the study. And suddenly, it was really annoying. You know, I really wanted to stop what was going on. And I weighed it quickly. So my anger was aroused, but it was only because it affected me. It wasn't the thing that was the worst of evils, which was Eddie's disobedience. It was the thing that directly affected me. 
So there's a selfishness going on, isn't there, with our anger? It's flighty, it bubbles up quickly, mainly because we're disadvantaged, inconvenienced. And that response, actually, uh, that anger led me to, or almost led me to a response. Whereas the scenes in Ukraine, not really done much about it, to be honest. So when we look at God's anger, we need to first realise that our anger is not the same. Our response is far too weak. We get angry about the wrong things. Things that affect us and disadvantage us. And God's anger is entirely unlike ours because he is unlike us. For one, his response can't be proportionate to or born out of what most threatens or disadvantages him, can it? I mean, what would threaten or disadvantage God's position? Or nothing. So his anger can't be a response like that, can it? Can't be that he's feeling threatened or inconvenienced or... No, that can't be the case. But we're going to see that God's response to evil arises out of his holy and just character. The reason God's anger is kind of settled and not flighty, the reason why it endures is because it's connected to his character, his righteousness, his justice. Do you get that? Because God's character doesn't change. He is always righteous. He is always just. And he always will be. That's settled. So his response to sin is going to be settled. It's not going to change. Yeah? Do you get that? It's not going to come one minute and then move and change the next. It's quite settled. The Bible teaches us actually that one of them, when God reveals what he is like, he says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, um, abounding in mercy. And then it says, slow to anger, doesn't it? Slow to anger. He does get angry. But his anger lasts. His anger endures. Because his character is, hasn't changed. He's just, he's just. He's holy. And the reason I mention this is because, again, God's response to evil is going to be different from ours. So his response is more than just a feeling. He, it is a feeling. You know, he hates it. But it's, not, it's more than that. It's more than to moan about it. He doesn't do that. We do a lot of that, don't we? God always responds. Consistently, absolutely. He always responds to evil. Can you imagine what that's like? So, to, to know someone who always consistently, absolutely responds to evil and doesn't, doesn't sort of let it go. It always gets followed up on and seen through. What all this means is that God's response to evil will not be revoked. Okay, If, if God is ang- anger, angry, he can't simply stop his anger. Because his anger is justified. Because it's linked to something that is evil and wrong, like we saw in that picture. He can't simply then retract or revoke his anger because then that would be unjust. You get it? Yeah. God is unjust if he just stops his anger, decides one day, I'm, I'm stopping my anger. No, what he has to do and must do is turn his anger. The Bible consistently talks about it 
in this way. God turning his anger. You had that passage in Isaiah 12 where it said, should we look at it again? Um, Isaiah 12, it says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. That you might comfort me. Your anger turned away. God turning his anger. He doesn't stop his anger. He turns his anger. And that really helps us when we go to what we've been reading about in Matthew. Which is Jesus saying, I will take this cup. Let's have a look at that now. Um, Let's go back to Matthew. Matthew 26. Verse 36. And this is our first point. Uh, We actually only have two points. So, First point is that the cup that Jesus talks about, this cup, is God's righteous anger. And it is full of his wrath. Okay. Um, Let's let's look at that from one other uh, New Testament place. Um, And it will be Revelation chapter 14. So if you get a finger in Revelation chapter 14. Verse 9. So you could go to lots of other places in the Old Testament uh, where God's wrath is referred to as the cup. Uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Habakkuk. But it's probably no surprise that we find the cup imagery repeated in this letter. Because if you know anything about Revelation, it's, it's got loads of imagery. And it talks about the final judgment. So it's not... To put those two things together and it's not that much of a surprise that we find the cup mentioned here as well. Uh, but if you look with me at uh, Revelation 14 verse 9. It's one of the things that uh, John saw in his vision. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in this image and receives a mark on his head or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And their smoke, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. So the picture, it actually tells us what the picture is, doesn't it? It says the cup. Well, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. Uh, sorry. The wine of God's wrath poured strength, full strength into the cup of his anger. So God's response is his anger. Uh, but the wine itself, what, what is tasted, is God's holy character. And when God's holy character interacts with something that is evil, then you get his wrath. His wrath isn't sort of like a, an, almost like a, an emotion or something. It's not the same as his anger. The wrath is his character. And it's a side of his characteristic. His justice and his mercy and his, all, you know, his side of his justice and righteousness is his wrath because it's his response to sin. So have that picture in mind. Jesus is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is just before he's about to get arrested. And he is praying. And Jesus himself says these words. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So, so what Jesus chooses to say and to pray in the garden is about this cup. So it must be then that what Jesus is anticipating is going to happen, what we all know is going to happen in, the gar- uh, in his arrest, trial, cross, is, is related to this righteous anger and God's wrath. Because he says, this cup. He's talking about his death, isn't he? But he's talking about it in terms of God's righteous anger and his, and his wrath. So we have to get this because this is the way to understand what Jesus dreaded. You know, it could be, couldn't it, that people think Jesus is just sad. He's sad that he's going to have to die, that he's going to have to suffer. Well, interestingly, if you look at verse um, 32... Jesus has just said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So he knows it's gonna, what's going to happen. But then he says, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus, Jesus knows that the death will not be the end. And yet in the very next bit, we find him sorrowful and in anguish and dreading something. And you could think, okay, he's just dreading the pain and the, the humiliation or the betrayal or any of those aspects of his death. But I think it's more than that. I think he's dreading the experience of his God's wrath, of his father's wrath. And that's a profound thing, isn't it? Because he's never had to experience that before. And that's the thing that I think weighs so heavily on him is I've got to experience, I've actually got to experience God's wrath, my father's wrath. And Jesus, more than anyone else, would know what that would be like. And that's what he's dreading. And yet, it's what he's prepared to face. So he's dreading it. He says, doesn't he? My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. At that point he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then uh, down in verse 42, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. This time it's slightly different. He says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Slightly different, isn't it? If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So what Jesus is doing in dying on the cross is he's taking the full wrath of God for our sin. Situations can be interpreted all wrong, can't they? Um, If you imagine walking past a head teacher's office and a child holding a piece of work, you might go, oh, well done, Johnny. Get to show the head teacher your work. That's fantastic. Well done. And yet you realise actually you've interpreted, interpreted the situation all wrong. You thought that Johnny was going for a reward. He was going for a punishment, right? 
He hadn't done the work and his teacher had sent him and he was going in for a punishment. And in much the same way, when we look at the cross, I think we can sell it short of what it actually is. We can think we can understand it by what it looks like. So we can say, oh, Jesus is doing a a, a loving act. He's being sacrificial. He's laying down his life. And while all those things are true, it's only really in order to understand what kind of sacrifice and what kind of love, you have to understand that there's a wrath of God that you can't see. You can't. Physically, your eyes, you think, well, okay, he's just a man dying for someone else. You know, he's showing them that he loves us. And much in the same way, I think um, Muhammad got it wrong entirely when he said that the cross was an illusion. That Jesus was not really there on the cross. It was God just, you know, fooling everyone else into thinking that there was a man on the cross that looked like Jesus. But he got it entirely wrong. And so we actually have to take what Jesus himself says about the cross. And he calls it the cup. The cup of God's wrath, his righteous anger at sin. That's what Jesus is saying he's going to uh, taste. And it's what he dreads to taste. And yet it's what he is prepared to taste for us. Um, I'll show you this uh, quote. I think it's a magnificent quote um, from a well-known preacher. The whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mere mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When Jesus put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But for his love for his people was so strong and his commitment to the Father was so steadfast that Jesus took the cup in both hands and at one tremendous draught of love he drank damnation dry. He drank damnation dry. He, he drank all of it. He, he used up, he completed, he emptied God of wrath for our sin. Isn't that amazing? For those who will, he will bring into his kingdom and save, there is no wrath for them to face. There is no anger in God because there is no sin. Because the punishment has been paid. That is amazing. And going back to where we started, um, what does this mean for you and for me? Well, I think it means that the cross shows us two things. And we have to get this really clear. The cross shows us what God does about sin. So whatever we thought God's response was going to be like, we might have thought it's going to be a bit like ours. You know, he is, he is going to be annoyed, but that's just going to kind of blow over. If we thought that that was going to be the response of God to sin, then look at the cross. The two pictures that the Bible gives us of God's anger are the cross and the eternal judgment to come. And neither of those pictures give us license or uh, room for the interpretation that God doesn't really mind sin. That he thinks, you know, it gets a bit frustrated, it's a bit annoying. It doesn't give us that kind of interpretation. So if that was your view of sin, 
And if that's currently what you think God will respond like, then can I urge you, let this inform you. Let Jesus' death, a picture of that, let the picture of what we just read in Revelation show you that God will not tolerate sin. He has to respond because of out of his character, out of who he is. And his anger cannot be revoked. Either he turns his anger away from you and I towards Jesus, or we will face it one day when we stand before him. And if Jesus, who knew better than any of us, dreaded that prospect, shouldn't we? Um, In a desire to make the cross more palatable, some people have and, and will try to play down God's wrath. They won't do it by saying we don't believe that that's what is going on at the cross, usually. What they'll do is they'll emphasise other characteristics or other aspects of it. So they'll emphasise, okay, it's it's God's love and his mercy. So no one thinks, okay, well, that's wrong, because that's right. But all the while, the narrative of God's wrath has altogether dropped from the conversation. And what that means is, we're, we're, we're actually playing down who God is. And at the one opportunity we have to see his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and we basically said we'd prefer to see it another way, his love and his mercy. And somehow his love and his mercy are redefined to mean, well, not just <laughs> and not holy and not righteous. And that what happens when we do that is, um, if God were never really angry at my sin, then what you will find when that starts to be taught and emphasised is that it doesn't really matter if I sin now. If God was never really all that angry at my sin, and somehow the cross is not really his wrath being poured out, then what does it matter if I sin now? Mm-hmm. Um, So what you'll find, I think, in churches or places where an attempt to rewrite the cross that removes God's wrath has taken place, well, anything goes. If God doesn't really mind all that much, or if he'll just learn to tolerate sin, then it really doesn't matter how I live my life. And the other thing that comes from that is, well, we don't really praise God. Not really. Because... If we reduce down what God is, such that eventually he starts to look more like us. No one's going to praise him, really, if he's just like us. And actually, it's not really praise if it's not who he really is. We can say what we like, but if we're not actually saying, God, we... That's who you are, and that's a true representation of who he is. Then it's not really praise. <laughs> and so the irony is that to de- deny God's wrath is also to deny his justice and to detract eventually from his love. Because the Father's love and the greatness of that love is that he would turn his wrath, which we provoked, he would turn it to Jesus. 
his perfect son. And Jesus chose that, didn't he? Jesus is not the sort of innocent bystander in all of this. Well, he is innocent, but he's not the guy who's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. We've heard, haven't we, that Jesus said, yet not my will, but yours be done. He chose it. He chose to do that. The father chose to send his son. The father loves us that much that he would do that. The son chooses to go to the cross in obedience to his father and out of love for us. And it's because he drank the full wrath of God's anger at our sin that we can praise him. We won't really praise him. We won't really think we need to praise him if we don't realise that he has turned away the wrath, the thing that we really did deserve um, and would have faced. Um, so if you're a Christian here, um, this is a great opportunity in the next week, isn't it, to, to go back to that truth, to go back to the garden of Gethsemane and to say, Jesus, you, you drank the cup for me. You knew, you knew what it was. You dreaded the prospects and the experience of that wrath. And yet you're willing to do that for me. Thank you. Um, let's, uh, in a moment we're going to pray. Um, so let me uh, turn us to that now. And if there are some questions that arise from this, uh, it might be familiar ground for some people, but um, it's wonderful that we can... And praise God for who he is. Let's pray. Father God, you sent your son Jesus to this world and to the cross out of loving concern for us. Jesus, what, what you dreaded most was the experience of your father's wrath, his displeasure and his judgment. You knew how dreadful that would be, but hadn't yet to taste it. And even the prospect of it pierced your heart. And yet such was the length and breadth and height and depth of your love for us and of your steadfast obedience. You drained that bitter cup that was poured out for us. And you swapped it with the sweet taste of forgiveness. You gave us your cup to drink. We thank you. We praise you. From the depths of our hearts we thank you. And we praise your holy name. And we await the great day where we will see you face to face. And we will see the scars on your hands. And we will, we will praise you all the more that you are willing to do that for us. Amen. Amen.